I can't speak for everybody here at the table, but I know I cut my teeth in the bluegrass jam scene in Asheville. Phil? The all-night music scene? The late-night late bluegrass night picking, scene. picking scenes? Yeah. Some say Town Mountain was born from the na- late-night picking <laughs> scenes in Asheville. That was the opening line of our bio for years. <laughs> <laughs> That's why we know it so well. Welcome to Southern Songs and Stories, the music of the South and the artists who make it. And this is our episode on Town Mountain. I'm your host, Joe Kendrick. Hi, this is Lucas Nelson with Promise of the Real, and the podcast you're listening to is part of the Osiris Network. Osiris is creating a community that connects people like you with podcasts and live experiences about artists and topics you love. Sign up for the newsletter at OsirisPod.com to stay in the loop. What motivates you? Think about what gets you out of bed every day. What gets you to do all the things you don't really like doing so that you can get to your comfort zone? On the most basic level, we are all motivated by desires like love, belonging, esteem, autonomy, and purpose. Given the choice, most everyone would choose to be popular, successful, and free. But how many people do you know that can check off all of those boxes of desire? It's almost impossible to have it all in this life. And the same goes for music. It's not quite a law of physics, but the most popular music is, critically, almost always the least well-received. Musical geniuses are often hard-pressed to translate their vision into lucrative careers. Lucrative careers can quickly become gilded cages which stifle creativity and sense of purpose. And beyond our own lives, the things that we create can mirror these patterns. The inverse relationship between artistic purity and success is predictable enough that someone should graph it out. Maybe they already have. I can see it now. Popularity goes up, and sooner or later, originality goes down. Jazz started out as something completely new, went on to be the biggest thing in the nation, and then had to break out of its own gilded cage to make anything unique. When Bill Monroe invented his own form of music in the 1940s, he had no way of knowing how many people would set those first 28 songs recorded for Columbia Records up on a pedestal about how bluegrass would become a musical institution and how generations of artists would at times try to lay claim to and, at others, escape from his legacy. Start my morning in the middle of the afternoon 
coffee and a little smoke to get me through Trying to get my day on track Offers to let me knock one back Till I'm all bowed up and pounding at the thought of you Thought it'd be a best if it went our separate ways That's a bit of New Freedom Blues, the title track to the five-piece Western North Carolina band's sixth studio album. You also heard their instrumental Four Miles before that, from their 2012 disc Leave the Bottle. On the surface, New Freedom Blues is about the bittersweet freedom resulting from a breakup, but it applies to a lot more than lost love. For Town Mountain, it also is about breaking ties with a certain musical institution, I spoke with banjo player and vocalist Jesse Langley, mandolin player and vocalist Phil Barker, and bassist Zach Smith one wintry Saturday afternoon on the banks of the French Broad River in their hometown of Asheville at one of the band's favorite hangouts, the Bywater. It may not even matter to anybody out there, but it's amusing from my point of view because I witnessed this being in my day job, being in radio, and the sort of the water cooler talk, the little cultural wars that flare up from time to time about the music itself when people get really passionate about what they think a music should be what that style should sound like and people that fool with that or change it along the margins or completely or they're no longer part of of this little collective of this style of music that we call bluegrass and I think when the rubber meets the road and you're out there in a city somewhere out in the country because you're touring nationwide, that largely this doesn't even occur that it, to any of them that this has ever been a thing. But there's still the bluegrass police. So talk about the bluegrass police. Well, you're right. You travel most everywhere and people just want to see good music and, and they're not so concerned about what label you put on it. Um, but it's funny. I think about this often because it's part of conversation in in our band and in the general world of bluegrass music. I mean, arguably, anything after Bill Monroe is not bluegrass. And even if you look at Bill Monroe's career from the Monroe Brothers to when he then had, you know, string bean in the band and he was doing a five-piece bluegrass, quote-unquote bluegrass thing, it changed. Bill Monroe's music evolved from the beginning of his career to the end of his career. And if, that is, if that's not enough for somebody to acknowledge, then they're never going to wrap their brain around bluegrass music, music being all these kind of offshoots of this concept that was around 60 years ago. Uh, it's just always evolved. It's always going to evolve. So um, there'll always be that group of players that want to keep it true to what 
whatever true is in their eyes. But uh, it's never going to be as true as, uh, you know, 1948. That's as true as it's ever going to be. For me, I feel like it's such a waste of energy. Like, it's such a waste of everyone's time to, like, get into an argument about what you think, how you think music is categorized or how you, what you want to call bluegrass or jazz or whatever. Um, I mean, in the end, it, it's like, it's music being played by humans and music is a form of art and art is a form of expression and it's always going to evolve it's always going to change and it's more about for me it's more about the community and more about the people that you the fans that you interact with and the community you create with them and whether they like jesse said if it's good music it's good music it's not bluegrass or whatever you want to call it so we i don't know i just kept trap try to step away from the conversation of what is or what isn't bluegrass anymore it's like it's just a waste of time in my eyes i will say like again like being a fan of town mountains before i joined the band i was skeptical going into the studio with drums especially being a bass player i was like oh man you know we don't need drums drums and blue my job <laughs> yeah I was, like, I was like drums and bluegrass is is mandolin and bass but um man you know i, I was proved wrong uh for sure getting in there with miles and and uh seeing how he blended with the band and and paid attention he's just so tasteful he pays such close attention and he and he's a fan he's a fan of town mountain so you know he was he was excited to be a part of it and he really took the time to listen through to the tunes and play play in a way that made the the tunes even better you know than they were uh without the drums and and so and i i've joked around a couple of times i was like playing with miles is like playing with a metronome you can drink beer with he's just it, it, it just put that on a shirt. Yeah, totally. Tell it with I his face. I am a metronome you can drink beer with. <laughs> it's our second bass player shirt. Man. Yeah. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, so I, I've, I've gone off on a tangent. Well, so many bands are getting uh, percussion players, cajones, drum kits, bringing in drummers, uh, using pedals, doing things. It seems like a lot of the bands that are prominent in in this music scene in the acoustic roots music world are doing that yeah um jd crow is also doing it in the 70s so it's it's been a it's been around bluegrass music for a while one of my favorite album bluegrass albums phil was spinning the other day in the van is a ralph stanley and jimmy martin album ralph stanley and there's drums all over that album and you wouldn't think Ralph Stanley would allow, and and maybe he didn't. Maybe Jimmy, <laughs> maybe Jimmy vetoed his I have vote. A feel is, I would lean towards Jimmy. On that. <laughs> yeah, sure. But he still he still is on the album, and Osborne Brothers did it. And so anyway, we're not. And, and Bill Monroe had an accordion. Yeah, you know, we're not like among other things. Town Mountain is not, you know, doing something new here. We're doing something that. Um, we respect within the music because I know that everybody in Town Mountain really loves J.D. Crow and everything he put his stamp on. That includes all the best stuff he did in the 70s, in, in the 70s, and it all has drums on it. So once again, his material, 
of that, you know, it, it really lent itself to drums and, and a lot of town mountains material really lends itself to drums. And I think, um, we're not doing it for any other reason than, uh, it works with the music. We're not trying to, you know, stick a, you know, a finger in somebody's face and say, we can do whatever we want in bluegrass. We're just playing to what the songs are. One of the things I did right a few weeks before we got together to record, well, maybe it was a month or so before, is I wrote to them all individually and asked them what their what their main influences were musically. I don't have it written down in front of me, but it was really diverse. You might have thought from a bluegrass band, you might have thought like, oh, Bill Monroe, Ralph Stanley, Jimmy Martin, you know, Larry Sparks, you know, down the line, Flatten Scruggs. But these guys were all over the place. Led Zeppelin to, you know, to Roy Orbison to, I mean, all over the place. The band, you can hear a lot of the band in there. I don't know if you noticed that when you listen to the record, but I, I hear a lot of that sound. And I think Miles adds a lot of that with drumming. But yeah, my point is that these guys have a very diverse collective musical language. And being young guys, in their mid thirties and forties, you know, we're all influenced by a lot of rock in our childhood. And so it's really natural that that would come out in their songwriting and their playing. And, and I think that's cool what town mountain is doing that way, but you know, they're a bluegrass band. They're, they're a solid bluegrass band. They can play bluegrass. They love that music, but they've got all this other musical language with them as well. And they're being really true to that in the sense that they're letting that, be part of their personality. I don't know if I'll ever be surprised at people listing influences anymore after one time in recent years, I was backstage at Merlefest talking to the bass player in a bluegrass band who informed me that he doesn't even listen to bluegrass. He listens to hip hop. 
yeah. I mean, it's so true. It, there's just, there's so much great music out there in so many different ways to be inspired by, by someone. I think some people, some people struggle with that as listeners. They want that old school stuff, you know, but in some ways that just becomes recreationist, which is, which is good and it's okay, but it doesn't really, um, it's not really true to what is actually happening right now for, for musicians and, you know, what you're writing. So, yeah, I mean, here we are in these times, right? <laughs> it wasn't hip hop in 19... 19- 14 necessarily <laughs> when Bill Monroe was born, you know? <laughs> no, not, a, no, it was, it was, it was in the, it was in the water somewhere. <laughs> it was, you're right. <laughs> there was some cool stuff going on. There's some jazz hip hop that was probably happening. probably down in New Orleans or something. That was producer Caleb Clowder talking to me from his hometown of Portland, Oregon, following a little bit of the town mountain song underdog from new freedom blues. Caleb is a member of old-time string band Foghorn String Band and has a lot of country music and Cajun music in his repertoire also on records and collaborations with artists like Reeb Wilms, Joel Savoy, Jesse Leger, Riley Bogus, and Dirk Powell, who also engineered and produced Town Mountain's 2016 album Southern Crescent. One thing that strikes me about Town Mountain's sound is that it is so informed by music like rock and roll and country. Take the opening of their song, Underdog, for example. You can probably come up with a bunch of songs using phrases like that. That was The Police, from my favorite album of theirs, Zenyatta Mandata. Nonsense phrases show up all over the place in rock and soul music. Reduplicated phrases like boogie-woogie, nitty-gritty, and lovey-dovey are in abundance as well. These type phrases aren't unique to just rock and soul, but I don't recall much of that sort of thing coming from bluegrass music. That phrase from Underdog is another clue to discovering where Town Mountain is coming from, and songs like this make their attitude plain to see. Got no time for the law, no. 
just trying to make another show. Recorded live at Isis Restaurant and Music Hall in Asheville, North Carolina, that was a bit of Law Dog, which puts the band squarely in the outlaw camp of the bluegrass world, if there really is such a place. It's my guess that a lot of purists, those bluegrass police that we talked about earlier, would take a dim view of the character in that song. The message there is clear, and it is echoed in a lot of Town Mountain's material. I'm living the way I want, I'm not hurting anybody, and your judgments mean nothing to me. Whereas so much of bluegrass music comes from a place that is almost always polite, Town Mountain wears their attitude on their sleeves. I spoke more about where the band was coming from and their influences with bluegrass musician, former bluegrass DJ, fly fishing guide, husband, father, storyteller, and fan of Town Mountain, Jerry McNeely. I was talking with their producer for New Freedom Blues, Caleb Clowder. Before he got started on the record, he asked all the members of Town Mountain what their main musical influences were, and they came back with a lot of artists like Roy Orbison and and Led Zeppelin. Now, at least some of the members, Robert Greer and Bobby Britt and Zach Smith, for example, they all came up in the acoustic and bluegrass tradition. But for a member like Jesse Langley, his gateway to bluegrass was, can you guess what band that was? I have no idea. It's actually pretty straightforward. It's pretty easy once once you know. It's old and in the way. Oh, of course. Yeah, a, a gateway for many folks into bluegrass is music of a group like Old and in the Way and the Grateful Dead. Yeah, they're, they're the gateway drug of bluegrass music. And uh, I remember a young Jesse. And uh, 18, 16, whatever, 20 years ago, I have no idea how long ago it was. Jesse was one of those guys who constantly immersed himself in everything he heard. You know, as soon as he discovered the early music of of J.D. Crow playing with the young Jimmy Martin, the next week at the Town Pump Jam, Jesse shows up with his banjo and he's learned all J.D.'s licks. He, uh, the, the varied influence. You know, you would never think of of that being odd in any other genre than bluegrass music, simply because so many bluegrass listeners, especially, really, they don't care much about listening to any other music other than bluegrass music. But you wouldn't think that was uncommon for a jazz musician or for a rock musician or in another art form. Let's say you're a chef. No chef would say, oh, I only enjoy Indian food. I don't enjoy Italian food or Chinese food or whatever. I think the the important thing to me as a listener was that they could always combine these varied interests in other genres of music in a very not only respectful but insightful way because they really did respect bluegrass music as a genre. Uh, they wanted to be careful about how they introduced these influences 
because they uh, they respected what the art form was as a whole. And, uh, you know, you just didn't see a lot of that, especially in young musicians. That takes a lot of a lot of talent, a lot of, uh, of sheer ability, especially from a listener standpoint, to be able to do that. To my ears, Town Mountain comes from a place that is, it's not a, where a lot of bluegrass music comes from. It's It's got a kind of an attitude. Uh, its reference points, I think, point more towards an artist like, say, Jimmy Martin than, you know, fill in the blank. Exactly. There's a bunch of swagger there. <laughs> There's absolutely a bunch of swagger. But just like what, what drew those guys to that early bluegrass or what, what draws you to a lot of these super powerful artists that I know they've drawn from over the years is an air of authenticity. And I think that's what a lot of true purist, hardcore bluegrass fans really didn't enjoy about a lot of the neo-traditional bluegrass bands that came across because they sounded like rock musicians who you had handed a bunch of bluegrass instruments to. And Town Mountain was steeped enough in the traditions of the music and had a large enough bluegrass vocabulary to, to incorporate these influences without diminishing the music. Okay, Jerry, you're from North Carolina, right? You're a Tar Heel? Oh, yes, sir. Can you tell me what the term Tar Heel refers to? You know, I think it was something about floating logs down the Tar River to, to make tar for the ships. Uh, we were a seaport state, something along those lines. Well, Town Mountain has this instrumental called Tar Heel, but it's H-E-A-L on the record. Mm-hmm. So we're going to go into that next here on Southern Songs and Stories. Thank you, Jerry. Yes, sir. Thank you. So I can move along Is it just because they're friendly Or the fact that I 
think I'll have to go and sit down Do you reckon that they notice? Do you think that they believe? I've been getting in the meanness On the dark end of the street Do my eyes tell my condition? Does my breath show? Talking about the song Down Low and the character in that song, there's a lot of um, sort of a mythological American elements running through. Can you talk about that? Does it seem like you, you uh, maybe a kind of a familiar character to a lot of Town Mountain songs, actually? Tell us about your take on that, if you would. Sure. Uh, yeah, the song is, is about, well, to put it bluntly, it's just about somebody who's buzz is a little too large and um it's oblivious to them but everybody around them can see exactly what's going on so in short the moral of the story is to just kind of keep yourself in check and then that can apply to a lot of different um aspects of one's life but but this one is yeah you can hear in the lyrics i mean the person is stumbling around and you know they got bad breath and (laughs) And they are not keeping it on the down low. I actually had that chorus stuck in my head for a while, like a year. And I was like, there's something here. And I, you know, kind of had the idea. But when Tyler came on, he started kind of thinking about the the song, the character, in the way I just described. Like, I was like, oh, yeah, that's that makes a lot of sense. Uh, so it, we we wanted to make the character kind of, have some humility, you know. That was the band's first and only banjo player, Jesse Langley, talking about the song co-written with Tyler Childers. Coming up, we touch on how many other players that have come through the ranks in Town Mountain after getting some insight into the business of being a full-time band. And of course, more music. All that after this. Hi, this is Anya Hinkle, and you're listening to Southern Songs and Stories, where you can hear about my band Telico on our podcast in this series, documenting the music of the South and the artists who make it. Southern Songs and Stories is available on podcast platforms everywhere and at southernsongsandstories.com. The best way to reach more listeners like you is for you to take a moment to leave a good rating and comment for this podcast. Thanks for listening and for your support. Town Mountain has been active for more than 10 years now. They tour across the United States regularly, have six full-length studio albums, a live album, and a two-song release called The Dead Session, covering the Grateful Dead's Mississippi half-step uptown toodaloo, along with their version of Johnny Cash's Big River, which the Dead played live many times. Speaking of covers, their take on Bruce Springsteen's song I'm on Fire is approaching 5 million listens on Spotify. 
They have come a long way from the late-night picking scene where they cut their teeth and are able to afford a producer, a booking agency, and a publicist. I wanted to find out more about that largely unseen side of a band's existence. Here's their publicist, Sarah Bennett. Sarah, I want to get your insight into what it means for a band to have a publicist, and at what level do you think artists and bands need to start thinking about hiring a publicist? What does all that entail, and what sort of success stories might you point to? Okay, so I think it it really depends. Um, For each case, it's different for everybody. I think it's always helpful to have a publicist to get the story out there, especially if you're on tour and you're going through a bunch of cities. Um, It's always helpful to let people know you're coming. And um, our job is kind of just to get the music out there and to find new ways to reach new fans. Um, And I think that that is is really helpful for any artist. So for Town Mountain, what do you do? And can you talk about what they may be able to accomplish publicity-wise? And what are the sort of goalposts here? So we started working together early last year. And it was around Merle Fest, which they were playing. So they had a new record, um, New Freedom Blues, coming. So we kind of sat down and um, talked about strategy and some of their goals and, and what they wanted out of the record. And, you know, we got a lot of great stuff. We got attention from Rolling Stone Country and Saving Country Music, um, The Boot. It was just, it was a really great campaign. I mean, obviously, it was a great record. So, it wasn't a hard sell on my part, um, but I think that we we got a lot of um, of new fans in places that they had never been before. And in turn, you know, they went on tour in December with Tyler Childers. The part about getting noticed by media is one of the main reasons why a band should consider hiring a publicist. Magazines, blogs, radio stations, music sites, they all get constant communication from publicists about bands that are releasing something new, that are touring in their area, that are available for interviews, and so on. They serve a pretty important role in the music business, and paying a publicist means you don't have to try to reach out to and then respond to literally hundreds of these media organizations yourself. That would be after you actually look up who to contact in all of those organizations. Like almost everything in the music business, your mileage may vary on what you get from hiring outside help. There is everything from a la carte service to turnkey options available, and the roles these people play varies greatly from band to band and from contract to contract. Take producers, for example. Here's more of my conversation with Caleb Clowder. Talking about being a producer and this one of the first go-rounds that you've had in that role, you know, being a producer, it can be any number of things. It can be incredibly involved with arrangements with helping to write songs, or it can be almost totally hands-off and just going and getting people coffee. So right. Right. tell us about your approach and and how you see production at its best. Well, like you said, there's a few different approaches to that. And I think that first, that comes from the artists that you're working with. So for example, if I was working with a songwriter who doesn't have a band and maybe has recorded once or twice, they might come to you with a, with a batch of songs that are sort of written and, and not fully developed. And so, okay, how are we going to paint this picture? What musicians are we going to bring in? Um, I'm working with two young boys right now, two brothers on a record. 
And they're sort of in that situation. They've got a bunch of songs. But they don't know exactly what they want to do with them. They both play, but they, they want to fluff it out. So I'm really helping them arrange things and bring in some musicians. You have that extreme. And then you have the other extreme, like you said, where there's a band that's like Town Mountain, and they've been playing hard and playing for a long time, and they have their live show. It's really slick and smooth. So they came to me with these songs that were pretty much finished. I didn't have a lot of arranging input. I had a few things that I, I talked to with them, but, but I think in both instances, whether you're really helping to arrange and bring in musicians or whether you're a little more hands-off, I think both instances, it's really important to stay realistic with, with them and like give them some constructive feedback because everybody wants to grow. Everybody wants to be a little bit better than they were before, especially when you're recording. And I think it's really important to keep things positive and keep things moving along. You kind of get a timeline because you're in the studio, you're spending money. You need to move through this period of time gracefully, productively, and and creatively, and in a, hopefully in a happy, happy place, you know, a positive spirit, because that just comes out in the music. And I think that infiltrates you know, all the way to the listener and gives the listener a lot of joy and a lot of fun. Even if your band is not hiring a producer, it has a producer. It could be as simple as what band member picks which songs to put on their release. It could be as in-depth as hiring someone to write songs and decide who plays on them and exactly what they sound like. You could hire a producer for a flat fee, a daily rate, or even work in some of the payment on the back end in the form of publishing rights or a percentage of sales. I asked Don Dixon, who appeared in our episode on David Childers and has produced records by R.E.M., The Smithereens, and many, many others, about how he does it, and it's pretty simple. He wrote, quote, I always make records for a fee versus a percentage. These days, I imagine that most people charge a fee with the idea that there will be some kind of participation on the back end. As I tell my clients, I'm cheaper than your auto mechanic, end quote. From the Don Dixon-produced album Reckoning, that's a touch of R.E.M.'s Seven Chinese Brothers. Would you pay less than what you pay an auto mechanic for helping to create a song like that? I don't have any songs like that, but if I did, I sure would. I also can't play Orange Blossom Special, but Town Mountain can. And here's when they did it in 2014 on Live at Isis. Thank you. 
folks, we appreciate it for Tan Mountain. We appreciate it very much. Thank y'all. Have a good evening. Drive safe. Talking about Town Mountain as a place where a lot of musicians have spent some time over the past, say, 11 years when you've been a full-time act. So Phil, you and Jesse and Robert are the core original members. And we've got one of your newest members, Zach, here. Can you talk about some of the folks? I mean, we know a lot of familiar uh, you know, names and faces in the acoustic scene regionally that have uh, come through Town Mountain. Sure. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll make a slight correction there. I'm not an original uh, member. The original uh, mandolin player was actually someone who's been on one of your other songs and stories, Jed Willis, who now plays with Teleco. And uh, <clears throat> I came on about two years in, though, so I've been here for the majority of it. And, yeah, we've gone through uh, a litany of different musicians, um, some of whom have gone on to illustrious careers, Post Town Mountain, Barrett Smith being one of them, who's now playing with the Steep Canyon Rangers. John Stickley <clears throat> also played bass with us. <clears throat> Excuse me. And now he's got a pretty, a, a really nice trio band going. Uh, but yeah, it's just kind of been a, for whatever reason, you know, it's kind of been a evolving and rotating cast through some of the positions in the band. You know, it's not a, it's not necessarily a bad thing either. It's kind of changed the sound for better or for worse over the years, for different, we'll say. And, uh, but I don't think it's ever been as strong, at least on the low end side, as, as it has been since, since Zach joined. So we're definitely stoked. <laughs> sure thing, buddy. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not lying. I'm not just saying that either. Yeah, it's been, it's been cool. I've, I've been a fan of Town Mountains for years, you know, long before I, I got the opportunity to play with them. So it's been, it's been cool to see that progression myself just as a as a bystander and then now you know being in the thick of it and being a part of that uh change is cool and it beats the heck out of college i like to say for sure <laughs> i'm having a ball we could start rattling off the possibly close to 30 names between bass and fiddle that have at least played a gig with town mountain some of those people had some longer, you know, term positions than that. Some of them have been full, full-time positions. Uh, but there's a, a who's who of, of cast members. And uh, it's nice to look back over the years and see that all these people were part of the Town Mountain family. Um, I, I hope that one day we can book a gig and we call everybody in the band and say hey we need either fiddle or bass filled and we don't tell anybody else and then everybody all the fiddle players and all the bass players show up and town mountain's nowhere to be found yeah so watch right out here at the bywater would be a great place to do it <laughs> one day that'll happen i got a laugh out of the band when they saw this question likening them to a bluegrass finishing school not counting gigs just on their albums Town Mountain has included Jed Willis, as Phil Barker mentioned there. Jed now plays mandolin in Teleco. They had Barrett Smith on bass, and he is now in the Steep Canyon Rangers, and John Stickley, who played bass and guitar in Town Mountain. But now he is melting faces with his guitar in the John Stickley Trio. They also counted fiddle player Annie Staninets early on. She lives in Portland, Oregon now, as well as Nick De Sebastian on bass for their Live at Isis record. 
Cooktown Mountain brought on Adam Chaffins for bass and Evan Martin on drums for their recording The Dead Session, and Sturgill Simpsons drummer Miles Miller for New Freedom Blues, and Miles plays shows with them often nowadays. That's our show. I'm Joe Kendrick, saying thanks for listening to Southern Songs and Stories. Please support the music of the artists you enjoy hearing here, and I encourage you to spread the word about this independent project and consider helping by subscribing, rating, and commenting on the show where you get your podcasts and by becoming a patron. You can find out more at southernsongsandstories.com and at patreon.com slash southernsongsandstories, and you can keep up with us on our Facebook page, on Twitter, at South Scenes, and Instagram, at South Stories. Send me an email, and I will be glad to get back to you. From southernsongsandstories at gmail.com, Plus, our podcasts are available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and lots of other platforms, as well on Bluegrass Planet Radio. Find out more about Town Mountain on their website at townmountain.net, and check out the many projects Caleb Clowder is involved with on his site, calebclowder.com. That's Caleb with a C and Clowder spelled K-L-A-U-D-E-R. This is Southern Songs and Stories, the music of the South, and the artists who make it. Okay, the philosophical portion of the show where I ask this to everybody about the Southern question and what do you see from the South that shows up in your music and do you have any ideas about or thoughts about how music from this region especially influences and shows up in Southern culture? Oh, now, now, now you're playing the main <laughs> He's card. Pl- playing the main card. <laughs> uh, I, I don't know. For me, I guess the biggest thing would be like southern music in general seems to have this kind of soul to it, which kind of you get soul music and blues music out of hard times and struggle and people going through a lot of stuff. That's always something that's drawn me into music is just people that have a lot of feeling in what they're doing and, and definitely try to convey that in the music that we play. All my family played bluegrass and gospel and so I, I grew up listening to that stuff uh, which which you know I'm super super fortunate and I fell into that in my own in high school. I'll say being the only one that's not from the south in Town Mountain that was a driving force in me wanting to move to the South. I mean, I had a lot of, I still do have a lot of family in Virginia and, and visited Virginia a lot as a kid. There was a, a certain kind of air to the South that really intrigued me. And I, I knew from a young age that I probably wanted to come down here, but it wasn't until I picked up a banjo in Maine that I realized I should probably go to the source, which is the region in which we live in. Uh, you know, Western North Carolina, East Tennessee, Southwest Virginia. Uh, 